The Start On Demand. On demand. I'm Lorraine McNabb I'm with Greg Mackling this week, and we've been talking for months now about the rise in food prices. But now a new report is showing just how expensive it could get. Today on The Start, tips and tricks for lowering that grocery store bill. Plus, your favourite stadium chants, the moments that get you going, get your team going, the songs that pump you up. We also want to talk the gift of sleep. Have you ever had to spend weeks or months sleeping on the floor? We've got a Winnipeg organization that's trying to bring beds bring cribs to kids and newborns in need. We also want to chat the surgery backlog. It's only growing. Will a task force make any difference? And the Grey Cup really does have a family feel, but are some deep-seated rivalries starting to show? Bob Irving joins us on today's podcast edition of The Start. How are things in Hamilton? Well, I haven't been outside yet, but I can tell you it's minus eight this morning, Lorenzo. We're uh, sort of on par, quite frankly. I was in terms wondering. Of the temperature. That's not too bad. Yeah, I was thinking as we headed to this weekend, you know, for the game, and we had that freezing cold game on Sunday. And what would the players be prepping for for Sunday? And now it feels like we're. I'm not jealous of you. You're not jealous of me. No, it's all good. Sorry, I had my microphone faced in the wrong direction. I was speaking into the back of it, which doesn't really work very well, typically. So uh, if you're noticing a change, uh, that's why. Spun it around there. Sorry for the clunk. Yeah, well, there is going to be some divergence happening here, Loren. I hate to tell you this. Five degrees is the forecast high for tomorrow here in Hamilton. 90% chance of showers and a high of 15 on the plus side for Saturday. Uh, game day still looking pretty good, though. Sunshine in the forecast and four degrees. Almost perfect football weather, I'd have to say. Oh, it's going to be a great time. You mentioned banging the mic. I was yelling off air as I dropped the mic here. I knocked it out of the thing. And we've had a few glitches this morning, technology-wise. But we're, <laughs> we're tr- going to try to have some fun this morning. But as you just heard off the top of the news hour there with Jeff Braun, a report on food prices gro- going up. And that had both Jeff Forche and I sort of yelling him in the control room and me here in the studio because Forche, it's stressing you out. Oh, it really is. Uh, Just going to the grocery store itself and lately I've been trying to eat healthier, you know, fruits and vegetables and it's costing me. It's cost me so much every three days because I try, uh, I live alone and so I try to buy everything fresh because if I don't eat enough, then it goes to waste so I don't do that. But it's like 40 bucks every time I go to the grocery store and it really hits the pocket. It's Part of the stress I think many people are feeling as you head into the holiday season, if you're celebrating anything over Christmas, you're trying to think about what you're going to put on the table and prices for different items have gone up. And, and as Jeff was saying, we're going to expect to see a huge increase in 2022 between 5 to 7%, up to 8%, Greg, for some items. And I think that might just change the way people shop in terms of maybe not going to the stores often, planning ahead. Like, I don't know how many times people have said to me, you got a meal plan or you're just you're just going to overspend and waste. And I never really listened to that. Yeah, meal planning, I think, is uh, part of the key to this. But I think, Jeff, you know, you say not going to the store as often. I think going to the store more often sometimes is the key. Uh, again, conjunction with that meal planning. So you buy your produce fresh and use the produce because we do the flip side in our house too often, Loren, where we'll buy that great big six pack of peppers and, uh, you know, multiple bags of Brussels sprouts and and different things. And, and you get through most of them, but you don't go get through it all. And we already 
throw out something like 30 to 40% of all the fresh produce we buy at the store gets thrown out. So as prices go higher, we might be a little bit more cognizant in making sure that we don't throw anything out. The meal planning and then the leftovers, that's a big part of our strategy at our house. If we do a pasta, as an example, we'll make extra so that there's enough for the kids' lunches the next day as opposed to having to create and purchase something different. So I think there are some strategies here that we can implement because we waste so much food as it is to begin with. I think this might be um, the encouragement. We need to make sure we don't do that quite so much. So at 7.07, we're going to talk to a professor who is one of the authors behind this food report. It's the highest index price increase they've seen in 12 years. They've been doing this report for 12 years. So he's going to share with us what they're seeing. It sounds like the prairies could be hit even harder with food prices, which is not what anyone wants to hear. So we'll have that chat at 7.07. We're going to have an important conversation at 6.35 about that task force that was just announced for surgeries, Greg, in the sense that they're looking to find a way to get rid of that backlog. But we do want to have some fun. At 6.45 in our Having Coffee Talking segment, I'm going to share with you some of the audio that was played or heard at the game on Sunday on at the Western Conference Final and how it, uh, the Western Final rather, I'm making this sound like hockey, and how I was so pumped to be in that crowd. And that had me going down a real rabbit hole this morning, Greg, just listening to all the different stadium chants that are out there. They're saying here, Greg, but I went okay, looking. Well, I hope it's I hope it's suitable for radio. <laughs> I know. As I was listening, I was like, this could be another language. I don't know what's going on. That's of course coming from football, football, soccer matches. But I've seen soccer matches in England and they are such a good time. TFC in Toronto is so fantastic. The Bombers puts on a show. So at 6:45, we want to hear from our listeners for a chance to win Alice Cooper tickets. The moments at a sporting event that pumped you up. And if it's not a sporting event, Greg, there are all those moments in life where suddenly a song comes on or someone says something. And you're like, yes, this is getting me going. There is that combination of uh, music, pop culture, and and triumph at times. And and sometimes you just need that little extra oomph. And uh, music is so good at providing that. Or like you say, those chants uh, are absolutely hilarious. Some of them, many of them you could never, ever play. And Valor FC does a great job. Their fans, uh, the Valor Army, they do an incredible job of putting together some of those chants. Maybe Poitras can share with us some of the terrific <laughs> chants they put together and, and yell out at IG Field. in the stadium this past Sunday as Bombers fans. I think that was the moment we started to realize, you know what, this team, it might be making its way back to the Grey Cup. And so I was in the stands. Greg, I know you were there working. And I was so into it. I was laughing out loud at how I was just like, this is the best. And my kid's like, what is this song? What are you doing, Mom? (laughs) And it made me really think about those chants or those moments where you're so joyous. You're just like, this is it. This is so much fun to be here. The things that get you going. And if if you don't have a sports-related story this morning or a stadium chant that you want to 
chat about? What about the songs that just get you pumped up? Share them with us, 780-6868. That's for your chance to win two tickets to Alice Cooper. Greg, I heard you take a breath there. Are you just going to break in to chant? Mm, I just want to say, I was at the game on Sunday. I only worked half. I was in the stands. Good. Okay. Just like you were for the second half, and it was exhilarating, and you're right. There were certain times when you just kind of felt like, ah, which way is this going to go? And then there were other times like, ah, there's no doubt which way it's going to go. So it, it, was a, it was a wonderful celebration all the way around. So I think it's so much fun when the crowd gets into it. And I think in football, sometimes you feel like you have a role to play, like you might be able to help mm-hmm. out. But Cam, I know you've been to all sorts of different sporting events and you're a huge fan of the other football. So is that where your favorite sort of moments lie in the stadium? Well, I was going to pick uh, Liverpool, uh, Never Walk Alone, which is probably the all-time uh, best uh, intro song. But when it comes to stadium chants and stadium songs, i got to go with this one. Go, Cubs, go. Hey, Chicago, what do you say? The Cubs are going to win today. Uh, I, I choose this one uh, because this was the one from 2016. Game five, down three one, heading into the heading into game five. I was in a deep, deep depression. Uh, the Cubs down three uh, one in the World Series uh, to the uh, to the Cleveland uh, Indians at the time. Um, they come out big win, three two at Wrigley Field, first ever World Series win in Wrigley in in hundred plus years, sending it back to Cleveland. Uh, and this one was a joyous moment in the history of, of, of Cameron Poitras' sporting history. This was one of the all-time moments in stuff. And then, of course, the rest is history leading to the extra innings victory in the 10th. Cubs winning the World Series. Uh, so I, I got to go with that one because if I'm lucky enough to have a little bouncing baby whatever one day, I'll, that kid will be bouncing on my lap singing that song. Oh, that's so after great. After watching Cubs games. So. I'm going to change the words to this song. Go, Cam, go. <laughs> that's a, that's those, are the ori- those are the original lyrics. You didn't know that. Yeah, it goes all the way back. That's, that's a real earworm, I think. Okay, yeah. Bron. Bron and I have had some computer issues this morning. So has Greg. Oof. We've had the gremlins through the whole system. We need some uplifting moments. What do you got, Bron? Don't yeah, bring us down, my friend. I don't have a clip because of those computer problems. I just didn't have time. But uh, this one goes back to 1999, and it's not uh, like a stadium chant that you know happens at every game. But every now and then, uh, just a, a song comes along that everybody gets really into. And uh, in 1999, my job during Blue Bomber games was to uh, be on site and push the buttons and do the uh, technical producing for Bob, Bob Irving, and the gang down there. And the big song, uh, summer of 1999, was Ricky Martin, Livin' La Vida Loca. And they started playing that thing in the stadium while we were in a commercial break, and Bob started singing it. And we came back from commercial break, and Bob kept singing it. He didn't stop singing. And I was like, Bob, we're on the air. And he's like, I know we're on the air. I love this song. And he just he sang it for about 10 seconds and then you know got back into the football game. So I, I don't think we have the audio for that. I wish we did, but uh, that's uh, 23 years ago, so that'd be tough to find maybe but that that made me laugh i think about that every time i hear the song <laughs> oh man i wish we had a clip of that that is so good we'll have to, we'll have to track that down it has to exist somewhere okay greg uh you have been to all sorts of sporting events what do you got the moments that sort of got you back into the game so to speak well cam that's a great one i love going to wrigley field when the cubs win and everybody stands and sings that song that is oh, thing of beauty. yeah but l- listen uh the winnipeg jets fans uh, the gods of the 300 level were some of the best, greatest, 
unique chant makers of all time in the National Hockey League. I don't know what happened mm -hmm. to the chants from the early days of the return of the National Hockey League to Winnipeg, but I'm going to remind you of three. And uh, the first one and the second one are connected, even though they contradict once one another. It's kind of funny because when the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, came to town, uh, they, of course, uh, you know, they, they, Sidney Crosby is their best player. Well, when the Washington Capitals come to town, Alexander Ovechkin is their best player. And Jets fans like to remind Ovechkin that Crosby's better with a chant. And then later on in the season, they switch it around and chanting at Sidney Crosby, who when he first came in the National Hockey League, lived with Mario Lemieux reminded Sidney Crosby that he was in fact Mario's pool boy, which is one of the great chants of all time. And But the best, the best will always be directed towards Ryan Miller, goaltender. I think he was playing for Buffalo at the time. He was the goaltender of record for the USA hockey team when Canada beat them in the gold medal. So I guess all three of these chants are sort of connected to one another and the incredible chant of silver medal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, just absolutely heartless, right to the point. That was and, mean. I uh, didn't like that. Pure Winnipeg. I do, loved it. Do you remember when uh, Crosby just got to Pittsburgh and he was staying at Mario's place, and all the all the uh, media was outside of Mario Lemieux's house, and Mario came out and he's like, "Yeah, Sydney's inside right now. He's just having his nap." Uh, do you remember that? <laughs> no. <laughs> that piece of audio. Oh, you gotta Aww. find it. That's it's hilarious. He's inside. Yeah, he just had his breakfast. He's just having a quick nap, and he's gonna come out pretty soon. It was. <laughs> See, I don't know what it is. I hate when things. I hate when things get mean. You're like laughing maniacally in there. And you know when we talk That's about funny. No, when we talk he's about his little nap. He's in his oh. He's got his blankie. I'm gonna check it with Fortune in a second. I want to ask the question too. Is it too early to do some of those chants? Like at the game on Sunday, we were doing the ole 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 thing. Um, oh yes, timing is critical. Or hey hey goodbye. I can't remember. And I just thought, oh yeah. guys, like I know there's two minutes left, and this is probably ours. I don't like it. So that makes me nervous. I don't like it when we get mean. Jeff Fortier has the best smile of anyone I know. So you could probably just walk into a stadium and walk around smiling, Fortier. But what pumps you up at a game? Our team is red hot. Your team ain't doodly squat. You hear that, Ticats? We're coming for you, baby. We're coming for you. <laughs> is this like a grade six, like high school badminton championship song or something? Do it again. Our team is red hot. Your team ain't doodly squat. Woo! Right now, we want to talk about food, dairy, baked good, vegetables. Prices on all of them are expected to rise this year. With the Canada Food Price Report forecasting an overall food price hike of 5 to 7% this year or in the coming year. The report is a compilation of work from several Canadian universities, and researchers are predicting that for some items, Greg, the spike in prices could be closer to 8%. So this is the highest predicted increase the report has seen since it first started looking at this data 12 years ago. What does that mean for you, for me? Well, the average family of four, you can expect to pay up to 966 more dollars for groceries this year. And on the prairies, that bill could be even higher. Stuart Smythe is Chair of Agri-Food Innovation and Sustainability Enhancement at the University of Saskatchewan, joins us now. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. No uh, hard feelings over the game uh, this past weekend, I trust. We're, we're good. We're clear. It's all fine. Yeah, no, you know, once your team bows out, you always hope that your 
division does the best. So, so it'd be great to see the West and the Bombers uh, come out on top on the weekend. All right. I like the way you're thinking. Thank you, Stuart. So why is this happening? I know it's a simple question. Does it have a simple answer? It's got multiple answers, I think, Greg. So, so there's, you know, the, the COVID pandemic is still impacting food production in, in places. The, the transportation issue in, in the lower mainland is, is going to be problematic for, for months. Infl- you know, toss in inflation that's almost 5% year over year. So it, it's really, you know, unfortunately, it's like the, the perfect storm coming together for food prices. Why are we talking about, I noticed in the report it said dairy could be as high as 8%. And of course, the trickle-down effect to the restaurants. Let's just start with dairy. Why would that go up? In part, it's because the, the dairy board has decided to increase prices mm-hmm. effective in January. Uh, so so we were able to, to factor that into our analysis. And that's why dairy prices come out as, as, as being one of the, the leading uh, sectors of the grocery store for, for increase. And then in terms of restaurants, Stuart, obviously we know that uh, what they have to pay, uh, typically uh, they do their best to eat that, right? It's, it's, it's difficult to raise prices when you run a restaurant, but it's just getting to the point now where restaurants are really having no choice but to pass it along. It's that high. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, if you've been to a restaurant in the, in the last couple of months, a lot of them are, are looking for, for staff, so they're, they're short-staffed. Um, and, and that gets factored in, too, that if you can't be open, as I've heard restaurant owners saying they, they're unable to be open as many hours as they would like. So the fact that they're having fewer sales during uh, a business day, ultimately, you're right, If we, as consumers or, or patrons in a restaurant, we're going to pay a little bit higher prices for our meals. So we're talking about an increase, you know, for everything from bread to vegetables to dairy. It sounds like things could potentially be worse on the prairies. Why is that? In part because so much of our food, especially during the wintertime, comes from elsewhere. Uh, our fruits and vegetables are, are imported, uh, particularly for the next few months. And and in part, the, the Canadian dollars dropped over the last few months, so we'll pay a little bit more money because we're importing vegetables from the United States. So it's, and, and you know, fuel costs have come down a little bit in the, in the last couple of weeks, but uh, fuel prices year over year are, are higher now than they were a year ago. So Stuart, before we let you go, we'd be remiss that you've done a great job in giving us the why, but how do we combat this? Some strategies perhaps on how we can save money, buy less, consume more of the things that we buy? I think I think one of the things you know there's there's a lot of third party branding in grocery stores and and that just you know those labels drive up the price of the product by anywhere from thirty to ninety percent so this can be labels like organic or non GMO or you know products that can't have gluten in them labeled as gluten free so all of those products are as safe and nutritious as as other products um, so. The simplest way is to is to avoid buying products with those third-party labels. Another neat one I've heard is you know get together with some friends or um, some family and and when there's a a sale, buy you know 100 or 200 pounds worth of meat and then divvy it up um, or reach out to someone that knows a farmer. I've talked to lots of farmers in the 
last month and they're you know they're more than happy to to sell beef to people that are interested in purchasing it directly from them so that drops some costs on a pretty expensive category as well. Yeah, I bought a quarter steer direct from a farmer this year, so that's a good tip. I, I thought it felt expensive at the time, but man, is it saving us a lot now in our family, Stuart. So thank you for this. Appreciate it. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad to hear that you're able to do that. That's excellent. Yeah, Stuart, uh, Stuart Smythe of the University of Saskatchewan on the latest food report. We appreciate the time. Thank you. Have a good day. Of course, Greg, we'll have more on this throughout the day. I mean, as Forte was saying off the top, depending on where you're at in life and how you're feeling about things, this this could be a make or break year for you. No question about it. And I can remember talking to somebody that owned a grocery store all oh, five, six years ago. And I like, it always seemed like, you know, when you were getting a bag from the store before we started bringing our own, it was like about 10 bucks per bag of groceries. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yeah, back at that time was about 11, $12 was sort of the average per bag. Well, now keep track of how much money ends up in that bag. It's closer to 20 or $25 uh, for a single bag of groceries. I know it's a very rudimentary and, and simple or simplistic way to calculate it, but uh, I, I'll ask our listeners next time you go to the store and they put your groceries in a bag and you just get one bag. I bet you it's a lot closer to $25 or $30 than it is to $10. Talking a lot about food prices this morning as we expect to see food prices rise 5 to 7% next year, maybe even as high as 8%. Greg, you were talking about how you have that one bag rule where you check to see, you know, a few years ago, a bag of groceries might have been 10, 15 bucks. Tom says his one bag of groceries last night at the store was $35. And so you're bringing home a lot less, paying a lot more. And we know that this is part of an ongoing struggle with food insecurity. And of course, there's also just so many challenges, period, with people trying to make ends meet. And this is where we want to take the conversation next, because many of us might struggle with our sleep just on a daily basis, regular basis, but imagine trying to get that rest without a bad Greg or pillows or proper bedding and a reality for many Manitobans. You know, you make a great point, Loren, so many things we take for granted, Uh, but the things you mentioned being without, well, there is a group to fill in the gap. They are called the Oyate Tipi Kumani Yape Furniture Bank. And to tell us more about what they do, we're joined by Alexandra Beos. Good morning, Alexandra. Good morning. Thank you for taking some time with us and thank you for doing what you do. For our listeners who have maybe not heard of your organization, tell us who you're helping. So uh, at Oyate TP, uh, we're working to end furniture poverty through serving um, women and children leaving situations of domestic violence and other people experiencing um, what we call have named furniture poverty. And as you had said earlier, um, if you don't get a good night's sleep, it's pretty hard to function in society. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for, for so many of us, and yet here we are talking about just not even having the basic needs, Alexander. So what are some of your clients telling you when they come to you? What do some of those needs look like? Because I can imagine, particularly in a, a domestic situation, they might be leaving you know, short notice in the middle of the night. You can't plan a lot for where you go and might, what you might need next, let alone have the funds or resources to even make it happen. Well, exactly. So many of the the, uh, people who are referred to us uh, for their furniture needs um, come through uh, women's shelters and and women's resource centers. And um, 
When we get in a referral, we take a look through our showroom where we keep all the donated product that we have. And we do everything from turning four walls into bedrooms, into living rooms, into dining rooms. It's amazing how having a table and chairs to sit and have a meal together can help um, heal a family. Uh, but we're also looking for things like uh, pots and pans, uh, dishes, cutlery, towels, bedding, all the all the things that many of us take for granted um, because we have the means to purchase those things. Um, statistically, we know that it costs about four thousand dollars if you bought everything new to furnish a studio apartment, and uh, for most of the population, not just in Winnipeg but across Canada, um, we don't have that kind of money lying around. And uh, if you buy things at thrift stores where you can, of course, save money. You still have to have money in the first place, and then there's the risk of bed bugs. At Oyate Tipi, we have our own bed bug remediation program, and so everything that leaves our showroom is bed bug free. Alexandra, talk about somebody who might be in a situation. You mentioned the fact that you, you coordinate, you know, with women shelters and, and and women who might be in a in a poor domestic situation. A lot of those a lot of those individuals are looking for the perfect opportunity to leave an abusive or dangerous situation. So, you know, you might have a house full of furniture, but just because uh, you've decided to leave doesn't mean you can take everything you own with you. And so a lot of these people are also coming from a situation that's a dramatic change from where they were maybe just moments, weeks, days before. Oh, that's very true. And most people are leaving very quickly um, in us in a, moments of opportunity and many of them don't even leave with a suitcase with their clothing they literally are starting over um, one of the things that we try to do as well is provide toys for children because they have to leave those behind too um, and this is of course a very emotional and traumatic experience so we try to when we can um, fill in some of those gaps for the families we serve um, especially for the children you know with uh, teddy bears and toys and um things that uh, they can entertain themselves with, but also comfort themselves with. Yeah, that comfort would be key. And it comes down to just the things that they, to make them feel a little bit more like normal or make it feel a bit like home, even when they're not at home anymore. And they are kids, Alexandra. And it might be hard for them to understand where they're at. So the toys might help. Circling back to the beds, which I know is the big need this year. You're looking for new beds, as I understand it correctly, in terms of at least the crib. Yes, uh, due to uh, changing insurance liability issues, we can no longer give away used cribs. And, uh, you know, I'm just thinking in one week alone last year, around this time of the year, I gave away 13 cribs mm. uh, because children between, age, you know, newborns to age two, we try to give a crib to. Um, one, that's safety and security for mom and dad to know, or moms to know that their children are sleeping safe. But of course, children can't learn if they're not getting good night's sleep. And it costs us about uh, $300 to uh, equip a family with a crib, a mattress, and the bedding. Um, and it's about the same cost for a, to build a uh, single bed with a solid frame, a mattress, and bedding. Um, it, for the first time in our history, we actually have a surplus of furniture except for cribs and twin beds. 
Um, and we really want to see kids getting off the floor for Christmas or at any time of the year. Um, they certainly, we know that education is one of the ways out of uh, poverty and kids can't learn if um, they don't get a good night's sleep. And we work a lot with Indigenous families, but we work with other families as well. And I was just reading um, this morning that in the Winnipeg School Division, 55% of the children, 55% of children who are suspended are Indigenous, even though they only make up 27% of the population in the school division. And I had to wonder how how much of that are those behavioral issues are because the kids are sleeping on the floor. Mm-hmm. Because they're tired or maybe because they're hungry. Alexandra, you make a great point. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for your time and for sharing more about your organization. Thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to uh, getting calls from the community. You can call Oyate, Tipe, Kumani, Yape Furniture Bank anytime. Alexandra, if you're still there, do you have a number you can hand out? Yes, uh, 204-589-2218 or visit our website at oyatetipe.com. Sunday, Hamilton Tiger Cats, Winnipeg Blue Bombers, in the Grey Cup, the 108th Grey Cup. Bob Irving is in Hamilton. I'm here with them, but we are not in the same room. Good morning, Bob. <laughs> Good morning, G-Mac. How are you, Loren? I think we're both doing A-OK. It was a great uh, <laughs> evening uh, last night, a gathering of media members. And uh, once again, uh, Bob, not to tell tales out of school, but uh, another honour for you last night. Uh, is it overwhelming uh, to, to be running into these folks, uh, including the... The caretaker of the Hamilton Tiger Cats, he's not the owner, but he's the caretaker, Bob Young. I had a chance to speak with him. I think you did as well. Uh, mm. Quite the honor last night. Well, they had a, a little media reception, uh, Greg, and you and I were both there. So were Skyler and, and many others. Um, Kevin was there. And Bob Young, the owner of the Tie Cats, was there because, uh, you know, the Tie Cats basically were hosting it. And Scott Mitchell, who is the... Uh, CEO of the Thai Cats, who I've known for a long time. As a matter of fact, his dad, Doug, was the commissioner of the league back in the late 80s. And uh, I did some TV work for the league uh, after Doug got me involved. So Scott made a presentation to me, and he gave me a Hamilton Tiger Cats jersey now. Uh, I very politely accepted it. Uh, and I said, well, I'll wear this to the Bombers media avail tomorrow. That'll really go over well. Anyway, it was it was a beautiful gesture. It really was. And then I had a chance to talk to Bob Young as well, Greg and Loren, and I just want to say he's one of the great owners mm. that this Canadian Football League has ever had. Uh, his brother was a huge fan of the Tiger Cats, and when they were in financial jeopardy, oh, it's over 10 years ago, I guess now, Bob came riding in to save the day. He's a very wealthy man, basically because his brother loves the team so much. Now, his brother passed away a few years ago, but Bob has stayed on as owner, Bob Young, and he's a, you know, he signs the bills or the checks every year. He never complains. He promotes the league. Uh, you know, he's finally breaking even or making some money now because they draw good crowds at uh, the games of Tim Hortons Field here in Hamilton. So things have kind of turned around for him, although the pandemic was tough for everybody. He lost a lot of money again. But he just has an unwavering commitment to this franchise and to this league. And I chatted with him last night, and I told him, I said, you are – truly one of the great, great owners this league has ever seen. And I meant that sincerely because he stood behind this club through thick and thin. And if they weren't playing Winnipeg on the weekend, I would say it'd be nice if Bob won a great cup. 
Ooh, we'll just leave, we'll just leave it there, Bob. You know, I think it's yep. so fascinating. Just you, of course, have a long and storied history with the league. But for anyone who's even been to one or two or fifty Grey Cups, it really has that family feel to it. Like you're like you're at a reunion. And I'm curious for the players. Like even the coaches yesterday were. I, I don't know if chummy's the right word, but collegial yeah. and kind. And the players are like that when they're at the awards night. When does that shift to game on mode? Or is that just part of that underlying theme of the league? Oh, no, I think the animosity between the players uh, started building when this week began. The coaches are good friends. Mike O'Shea and Orlando Steinhardt, they're just, you know, they've known each other for a long time. They coached together, played together. They just have great admiration for each other. They're good friends. They're very competitive and both want to beat the other one like a drum on Sunday, but the players, and I noticed some of it uh, talking with the Hamilton players yesterday, Greg was there too. We got a chance to go outside and kind of chat with some of the players at a socially distant six or eight feet, of course. Uh, And you could just sort of, there's an underlying tone there uh, that they don't like all the kudos the Bombers are getting for their great season. Uh, Speedy Banks told me that, of course, they want to beat Winnipeg Sunday. They, you know, they lost the great cup to the Bombers in 2019 and he hasn't forgotten that. So I tell you, when the game starts on Sunday, there will be no friendships on that field. They'll be going at each other like mad. And there will, I expect there'll be some pushing and shoving. Simone Lawrence of the Tiger Cats uh, is a player who knocked Zach Kolaris out of a game two years ago, early in the season when Kolaris was with the Saskatchewan Roughriders. Simone Lawrence put a hit on him that some thought was a dirty hit. So there's an underlying dislike there between those two, although Calaris certainly won't have a chance to do anything to Simone Lawrence other than beat him for a touchdown, maybe. So I think there's going to be a lot of bad blood out there on Sunday on the field. Yeah, it's a hit that a lot of people anticipated might end, in fact, Zach Calaris's career, Bob. And so That's right, yeah. for, for, for Calaris to do what he's been doing with the Blue Bomber, Blue Bombers is absolutely extraordinary. We're talking about chance, animosity, that sort of thing. And uh, Hamilton will be the home team, not only with regard to playing in their home stadium, but they'll have the home uniforms. The Blue Bombers will then be the road team. And so I asked Brandon Alexander uh, yesterday, or I guess it was Nick Densky, I asked, about, you know, coaches are always looking to find a way to make their team the underdog. Where You know, we don't get enough respect. Well, that's going to be a tough sell in the Blue Bomber locker room is there anything that the bombers can find to sort of flip that conversation on its ear bob and and either make themselves the the formidable underdog or at least make them the you know the public enemy number one no greg i don't think there's anything they can do or anything they'll try to do you know in a lot of ways uh, the bombers are very boring in that their approach and i say that in a positive way <laughs> their approach just never changes underdog favorites they never talk in those terms never uh you know i know in 2019 they were underdogs no question about it but you never heard any of the players speak to that now they felt it and played with a chip on their shoulders but in terms of any public comments Uh, The Bombers won't say anything. Now, they know that it's going to be a tough go on Sunday because the crowd will be behind the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And they know that the Tiger Cats are doing a bit of chirping about we want to get even, we want to get revenge for that great cup loss in 2019. So I think that fuels them a little bit. But we're never going to hear a word from them uh, about underdog or, as Michael Shea says, overdog. He says, "We, (laughs) we just don't, we don't think in those terms. And they don't, at least O'Shea doesn't. Bob Irving, thank you for this. We're going to check back in with you same time tomorrow. I'll be here in the hammer, as they call it. 
you uh, go do something with that jersey, and I don't mean wear it. <laughs> I can't imagine a scenario at any point in my life where I would wear this jersey. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you would get a chat from it. me. I'd be chatting, booing you if you put that jersey on. Thanks, Bob. Uh, okay, bye. Here's the number. I was doing some math this morning on the latest data that came out on surgery backlogs. And basically, 63 times per day, a needed surgery was cancelled in this province during the first three waves of COVID-19. So these numbers come from the Canadian Institute for Health Information, and they found that Manitoba performed 1,900 fewer surgeries per month in 2020-21 in the first three waves. So in wave one, wave two, wave three, which wrapped in the spring than they did in 2019. So on average, that would add up to dozens of surgeries potentially being cancelled per day. It's a bothersome number. There's a human story, a human toll attached to every single one of those cancellations. Manitoba has just announced a task force to tackle the backlog, but the latest numbers out today show Manitoba isn't the only province struggling. Cheryl Chewy is the manager of health system analytics for Kai High, and she joins us now. Good morning, Cheryl. Good morning. I know they say misery loves company. However, I think we could do without the company on this front. This is a Canada-wide issue or something certain provinces are struggling with uh, more than others? So that's a great question. Um, This is a Canada-wide issue. We can see from our latest report, which looks at the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Canada's healthcare systems, for the first 16 months of the pandemic, so that's March 2020 to June 2021, that about half a million fewer surgeries were performed during those 16 months of the pandemic compared to the previous year. And so this is across Canada. Important to note, you mentioned that this is in the first three waves. So we're looking at data from March of 2020, the fall of 2020, the spring of 2021. Here in Manitoba, you know, in our fourth wave now, we have 152,000 people waiting for surgeries. Do we have any sense if there were improvements along the way? Like, what did we learn from past waves that would give us a sense that, okay, we, we did make some betterments over the past few months? So our data does show that uh, Canada's healthcare systems learned and adapted with each successive wave of COVID-19. Uh, The biggest drop in surgeries occurred during wave one um, as hospitals were preparing for a potential surge of COVID-19 cases. And so we can see that uh, in April 2020, there was the biggest drop in surgeries. But over the summer of 2020, many hospitals recovered and rebounded to almost pre-pandemic surgical volumes. Um, And then again, as pressures rose from uh, rising cases and hospitalizations of COVID patients, Uh, uh, cancellations and delays of surgery started to happen again. So we can see from our data that hospitals continually adapted and tried different strategies to maintain uh, routine care while also managing care for COVID-19 patients. So Cheryl, this isn't uh, something that's unique to the pandemic. This is something Canada struggled with for a, a long time. Yes, it's true. It is difficult with our limited resources to be able to balance the care uh, that's required by all patients. It's been a tough lesson for people to learn. We've talked to those who've had their heart surgery canceled just last week. We've talked to people who have had their cancer surgeries delayed, skin grafts, all sorts of different stories, that human element, Cheryl. Is there a sense that we can actually get out of this? We've talked to professionals that said there will always be a backlog. Is that something we should be willing to put up with? 
Well, I think what our data can can help show is which strategies are effective and where we're making progress. So that's our hope that uh, the report we're releasing today can help health system leaders as they address the backlog and the needs of patients that are affected by these delays. Lots more in this conversation in the days and weeks to come. Cheryl Chui is the manager of health system analytics for KaiHai, the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you. It's such a big number, Greg, to think that we can suddenly push back on 152,000 surgeries. It's, it's kind of mind-boggling in some sense. But I also don't like the idea of saying, hey, we're going to be okay with this. Like, you know, to hear that we'll always have backlogs is also disconcerting. Well, that's the balance that needs to be struck, unfortunately, in a public health care system is that balance between, you know, you, you can't afford you can't afford the system that we have that seems to be bursting at the seams at every turn. And then if you you, you obviously want to create a better system, but can you afford to have a system that has the luxury of having people standing around waiting for something to do? So I understand that there's a a line there that we need to navigate because of the type of system that we have and the expense of providing healthcare. But yeah, just think about those numbers. It's sort of 30,000 was the first number we heard. And then it went to 100. And now we're in that 152,000 and adding more and more surgeries every day. I, I know somebody who waited almost two years for a knee replacement, someone who is my age suffering day after day after day with pain, inability to do certain things, to live a, a life that that they're accustomed to and had to sit by. And because it's an elective surgery, we kind of, not all of us, but many of us will shrug it off. Well, you know, well, you know, they, they get to it when they get to it. Mm. No, everybody that is waiting for something has a story. Their life has been compromised. Their way of life, their ability to work may be challenged. Their ability to provide for their family uh, thusly is also affected. There are lots of ramifications uh, connected with every single one of these surgeries that gets canceled. And considering the fact that, you know, by the time that surgery might roll around, I've heard this story often from people I know and loved ones. It might be that knee surgery, for example. Your right knee is bad. You wait 18 months to get that surgery for your right knee, mm. maybe two years. Well, by the time you've had that surgery on your right knee, your left legs carried that load. Yep. So I knew that's what you were going to well, say now your left because leg you're needs bang to go. on. It, it might yes. be the same thing with your eyes. It could be the same thing with the pain that you're feeling. And so it's not just about that moment of what you need right now. It's about the long-term ramifications. And hey, I don't have the answer. I'm not sitting here pointing no. a finger at, Broadway, finger at Broadway and saying, this is what I would do. I, I don't know. We don't have unlimited resources. We don't have unlimited dollars. But we need to find a better balance here right now because we, I don't know how we can sustain a growing list of backlogs considering the growing numbers we're seeing in the ICU. And this is why we're, we're seeing it, right, Greg? We have more resources being shifted to the ICU to deal with COVID, among other things. And That's we can't cool. do all the surgeries. But at some point, we, we need to figure out a balance. And if that means moving people out of province, would our listeners be willing to go to a different province for that surgery, go to a different jurisdiction. Someone texted yesterday, Greg, they want to go to Grand Forks. They're, they're considering that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe that's part of the equation. Well, that pool of professionals is only so large. So even as we, you know, physically can expand, we'll use the ICUs as an example. You can physically create more ICU beds, but do you necessarily have the professionals, the ability to staff those uh, ICU beds? The answer right now is no. So you can have all the operating theaters, all the equipment, all the diagnostic systems that you want. If you haven't got the people to run them, you're never going to get out of this. So that, 
you're competing with other jurisdictions for those people. And so it may come down to there are some things we just might not be able to do in Manitoba anymore or we need might need to send elsewhere. My mom had open heart surgery when she was 42. It would have been in 1996, thereabouts, she had open heart surgery. They didn't do that surgery in Manitoba. She had to go to London, Ontario for that surgery. She was there for five weeks. It was a massive upheaval for our family. And guess what? She couldn't have everybody with her. So there's that cost as well. She came through it quite well. But, you know, who can afford to have their entire family go halfway across the country to support their mom or their, or their, or their children or their loved ones in a time of crisis like that? It's not an option. And having family around is such a big part of having a successful recovery. There's so many layers to this, Loretta. McGarry, McNabb, McGarry, still a little under the weather. Mackling in Hamilton, where we're expecting to see maybe Friday, Saturday. When do the fans typically start coming, Greg? They'll start showing up today. There are some fans here already. Saw some Tuesday. Uh, like I said, uh, seems to be the Stampeder fans that are leading the charge so far. And in fact, there were some Stampeder fans uh keenly aware and listening intently to the uh, interview that I'm going to share pieces of with our listeners in just a few moments here. So uh, yeah, the Stampeders are winning the fan competition so far. We're going to check back in with Bob tomorrow. Of course, he's down there with you, Greg. You've got a great team going on. Mayor Bowman's on his way there. I think it's Sunday, so we'll hear what he has to say. I always like the friendly bets that are made between cities, and I always wonder if you know people actually own up to them, besides just wearing that jersey, <laughs> because sometimes it's more than just a jersey swap, right? So I think there was one, was it not the, uh, Brett Kissel, when we played uh, Edmonton, the Jets versus Edmonton Oilers back in the spring, He's a country star out of Edmonton, and he ended up writing a whole song for Winnipeg. So, yeah, thank you for that, because uh, that was a, a bet. So, anyway, let's talk Great Cop. You had a great interview yesterday. Oh, well, I, it was a great time. Listen, listen a 15-year-old Greg Mackling is pinching himself continuously this week, and I had the good for, fortune to connect with fellow Winnipegger Jeff McWinnie. Jeff and I have become friends over the years. And if you don't know who Jeff is, he's affectionately known as the Keeper of the Cup. And I think we all have uh, an image or have seen the Keeper of the Stanley Cup. He's a celebrity of his own. Well, Jeff is a celebrity as well. Uh, the bigger celebrity, though, is the is the trophy that he carries with him from event to event all over Canada. In fact, last night he was at the Hamilton Bulldogs game, the OHL game here in Hamilton, showing off this incredible trophy. And he shares its history, the stories behind the stories of the seasons commemorated on that incredible trophy and the individuals honored, the stories he knows, Loren, the details. It's absolutely unbelievable. And just Father Glenn, also a Winnipegger, won the Grey Cup with Edmonton in 1954. And his nickname way back then was Keeper. I don't know. You can't write this stuff. Sometimes it's just, it's meant to happen. So in case you didn't know as well, there is a park in Winnipeg named for Glenn McWinnie on Roach and Linden. It's all blue and gold. In fact, I think there's a chunk of the old Winnipeg Stadium turf in that park. Yesterday, I spent 20 minutes or so alongside Lord Earl Grey's precious trophy. Oh my gosh, when he takes it out of that case, Loren, it's something special. So Jeff and I 
had an opportunity to talk about the history of the Grey Cup overall and some fascinating Winnipeg connections. Earlier this morning, we told you about the 1924 Grey Cup champions from Queen's University. And in case you missed it, that team and all Golden Gales teams have an indelible connection to our city. Queen's Golden Gales, their university stadium has a unique Winnipeg connection. Go. It certainly does. Uh, George Richardson, um, a, a great brother to James Armstrong Richardson, was a war hero, a great hockey player, and um, the Queen's University wanted to give him something. When, he, when we came back from the war, they wanted to honor him. They couldn't give him a hockey arena, but they gave him the stadium, which exists today, Richardson Field, which was the, in Grey Cup uh, 1922, was where Queen's won their first uh, Grey Cup, and they played at home. Okay, so Loren, I promised you I was going to tie the Grey Cup, the Stanley Cup, and the Titanic all together. Are you ready? Ready. So, Okay, so George Richardson was also a terrific hockey player. In 1906, Queens would challenge for the Stanley Cup, and Richardson scored three goals in the two-game series, although they lost to the legendary Ottawa Silver 7. Now, the Stanley Cup, of course, is known as the most difficult in sport to win. There are five individuals with an incredible distinction and we're going to connect now the queen's football team one of their players from 1924 and the stanley cup a gentleman by the name of carl voss and i believe he has a distinction that only five others or actually i guess it's four others five in total have what's that distinction the distinction is to is a, a great honor uh when you have five five names on the stanley cup and the great cup that are the same and the same person. So we have Lionel Conacher, arguably one of the greatest athletes that Canada ever put out, died in just, just over the 19, I think it was 1951 that he passed away. Carl Voss, Stanley Cup champion, Grey Cup champion. Normie Kwong, both Grey Cup champion, Stanley Cup champion. The great Wayne Gretzky and Joey Miller, uh, who was, you know, he was on the Ottawa Senators in 25 and 26 and also played uh, a goalie for uh, the Chicago Blackhawks. Oh. Very cool. Okay, so now your buddy there, Gretzky, gets <laughs> sneaks in there, right, as the winner of the, of the Cup as the owner of the Grey Cup champion, Toronto Argonauts in 91, and then, of course, multiple times as a player. So, Hugo Street. You're familiar with Hugo Street in Winnipeg? Yeah, like off Corden. You got it. Kay. Hang on. So that street is named for a man with a great deal of affection for Canadian football. John Hugo Ross uh, gave us the Western and Provincial Rugby Football Union, the John Hugo Ross Trophy. This guy started in 1911 and said he wanted to have something for the Western Province or Western Provinces to compete for. 1912, he, as a as a real estate agent and as a broker, he was in England and he decided he'd come back. Uh, had to come back early, and he got onto a, a ship in England um, called the Titanic. So he lost his life April 15th, uh, 1912. So it's, uh, it's something else that we have all these great, great Winnipeggers that have an association of great Hamiltonians that are having such a great association this league. Yeah, Jeff was going to say Calgarians as well. I cut that out because there were three Stampeder <laughs> fans at the hotel standing by as we conducted this interview. And so there you go. I connected the Grey Cup, the Stanley Cup, and the Titanic. Now there's one more trophy with an absolutely incredible Winnipeg connection. And this is from our friend Ed Tate at BlueBombers.com. Jeff Nicklin is the name of the individual I want to tell you about here. Jeff Nicklin had survived Normandy and the Battle of the Bulge, but on the day he took his last breath, 
during World War II. The former Winnipeg Blue Bomber, quote, never had a chance. Nicklin was born in Fort William, Ontario, now Thunder Bay, raised in Winnipeg and cracked the Winnipeg's lineup in 1934 and was part of the squad that captured the 1935 Grey Cup, the first team from Western Canada to do so. Jeff Nicklin, for those that don't know, a two-time Grey Cup champion, uh, posthumously went into uh, the Hall of Fame, uh, lost his life defending our country. Um, as a lieutenant colonel, uh, he, he lost his life just outside of Berlin when he parachuted in. He was, he was, uh, he was killed, and uh, we remember him as, uh, uh, and revere him as one of the greatest players that sculpted our, not only our country, but this great league. Every year a player gets a trophy in his honour. It's a most valuable Canadian, yes. It's, a, it's an outstanding award. I'm getting emotional talking about it. Yeah, the Jeff Nicklin story, Loren, is one we could do an entire half hour or more on. Uh, the Winnipeg Football Club plays in a little bit of trivia for you now. Plays its 25th Grey Cup game this Sunday. That is the most of any team, by the way. Edmonton and Toronto have appeared in 23 Grey Cup games each. And one more Grey Cup first for you that ties back to our city. I'd love to play it, Greg. There's no second clip in here. Oh my goodness! <laughs> can I'm you can so you recap sorry. it? Don't Let's apologize. Let's recap it for us. You know what? Here, can I, I'm putting it up in the sure. production queue. It should be there any moment now. Just play it out of there. Got it. We have 108 plates on there, and I love the fact you talk about the stories of all the all the men. But we have stories of women there too. The 3,803rd person is Dana Spiring, the chairwoman of the of the Winnipeg Blue Bomber Champions of 2019. So we have to talk about all these great people that have made that sculpted our country. And this is where we come to. And once we have no more room in the inn, we've got to start doing three R's. We've got to remove, retire, and replace. So the winning team will have its nameplate replace the 1924 champs. We've mentioned them before, the Queen Golden Gales. And Jeff tells me they have something very special planned for that ceremony. So the 24 champion, the 1924 champs, are they at the bottom part of the cup then? Like, how does it work? What's being replaced? Okay, so when we think of the Stanley Cup, we think of those rings, yes. those bands, right? Yeah. That sort of stack like a layer cake. And so at the Hockey Hall of Fame, they have to replace those bands. Otherwise, the Stanley Cup would be about nine feet tall. So they do that. Well, the Grey Cup is structured a little bit differently, and they have 108 plates on them. So each team is recognized individually. There's uh, nine uh, nine columns and 12 rows, or 12 columns and nine rows. I'm going off a of memory here. But so the top two rows are part of the main base of the original Grey Cup. Those will never be replaced. Uh, Jeff calls those the crown. So that's why they're starting at 1924. And so that plate will come off. It's actually at the very top row, if you like, of the Grey Cup. And they're just going to replace them over time. They will retire them with a lot of dignity. And those plates will end up in the in the Hall of Fame, I can assume. Greg Mackling, that's a wonderful story. I thank you for taking the time to chat with them. You phoned me so excited after you spoke with them, just with the different details and the connection and the Titanic and the war time efforts and Dana Spiring and all the rest. So much Winnipeg history in that one trophy. Thank you. My pleasure. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. 
And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.